Hello, everybody, and welcome into the latest episode of the Spy Point Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Marsh. A little bit different format today. Uh, Actually have another uh, Spy Point person here, not a guest today. Uh, Tanner Cherney, who is our influencer marketing specialist, is here. Um, And we've gotten into, uh, you know, we made it through spring. Turkey seasons are pretty much over. And really, we're on the cusp of trail camera season. So we just wanted to take some time, take an episode episode to really kind of walk through some best practices, walk through some questions that we get, and uh, and just really spend some time helping folks get ready for uh, the upcoming trail camera and scouting season. So uh, I, I forced Tanner to hop on here with me, and we're just going to run through all kinds of just a kind of a trail camera educational dump. So I appreciate it, Tanner, for uh, having you jump on. Absolutely, Trent. I'm glad to join you here for one of these. So uh you know, behind the scenes a little bit for most of them, but this is, uh, I'm excited. So hopefully a few people will be able to pick a few tips and tricks and best practices out of this episode and be able to deploy them as they start moving their cameras out to the field here this summer. It's, it's definitely that time. Um, you know, the, I don't know for us, I don't know what it's been like in North Dakota, uh, because we've been pretty busy. We haven't talked about it a lot, but sp- winter just held on forever. Spring was late to get here. Turkey season was weird. Everyone I talked to, it was weird. So it just, it's still, you know, we're, we're recording this and it's early June and it just, it still feels like we're middle of May. Like everything feels like it's a month late. I don't know if it's like that for North Dakota too or not. It, it is, you know, we, we talked last year all about the drought we had up here and this year it's been the complete opposite it's just been miserable with rain and wind and i was just talking to someone not too long ago um about fishing and it's like right now we're middle of april beginning of may patterns for walleye fishing up here in the dakotas which you know beginning of june is not the typical norm so we're three four weeks behind where we normally should be this time of year with temps and everything so it's definitely been a strange spring and and start to summer which hopefully it snaps out of that sooner than later and whether whether it feels like it or not, it, we're we're rapidly going to get to Independence Day and you know kind of the midway part part of summer and uh, you know the the sale fires are going to start coming in for for all the the hunting locations. So it's it's one of those things that even if we don't think it is kind of the, we're going to start hitting those markers in the year where uh, we start turning our attention to hunting and and we're getting kind of that early push for those guys that like to get the cameras out. If you don't leave them out all year, but that early push for the folks that like to get them back out um, is about right now. So um, wanted to, first of all, we're going to talk about a little bit trail camera maintenance. Um, I, I leave mine out all year long. Tanner, do you leave yours out all year long or you know, I never used to growing up but in the last couple of years, just with coyote populations and checking on properties with the fawns and everything. Like I've gotten to more of a habit of leaving them out year round. But I mean, up here in North Dakota, we know how brutal the winters can be. And there's definitely a time and place to, to get them out of the field and cleaned up and ready for the coming season. But yeah. So when do you normally do that then? When are you pulling cameras and bringing them in? You know, it's usually recently with the weather it hasn't been as early as i expect but usually it's that april may time frame is getting them swapped out putting the fresh batteries in and then getting them back out and deployed hopefully end of may beginning of june so same same kind of thought process on on my side even when i'm leaving them out quote unquote year round um i'm still bringing them in to do some maintenance i i've tried to um what i'm trying to do is basically get through shed season And then what I'll do is uh, once the cameras start showing deer shedding so that I know that it's worthwhile to go actually look for sheds, um, as I'm walking those properties, I'll pull the cameras, bring them in, do my maintenance, and then try to get them back out either ahead of or like during turkey season and back out on properties hunting turkeys. Uh, We'll get back out and we'll start, we'll start putting the cameras back out, but um, don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but just kind of run through a quick checklist of um, what it is that people should be doing. So Tanner, when you bring them in, what it is that, what is it that you're doing to those cameras? And I'll, if you, uh, if you say something wrong, I'll just like ring a buzzer or something to let you know that that's, <laughs> that's not right. But um, what's, what's your process for bringing them back in? And then I'll run through mine. You know, the first thing is fresh batteries, pulling out the old batteries, yep. getting new ones in there. I mean, that's a no brainer, no matter where you are. Um, then it's, you know, 
cleaning up the lens on the camera, just trying to get all the debris from the rain and everything and the dirt building up on there. And then it's a matter of just, well, and you're pretty, cause you're Western North Dakota. So you're kind of dusty, like yeah, Northeast Indiana. So it's humid and it's, yeah, there's debris and stuff, but I don't have, not that you have dust storms, like it's New Mexico, but I've been to that part of the country and it's, it is, it's can be dry and it can be dusty. And there's not, there's not a lot of trees. There's not a lot of wind breaks. There's a lot of that wind blown dust that I'm sure just kind of packs in those cameras. It's a little bit different than what some other folks might be dealing with. Exactly. And you know, and up here in the Dakotas that there's more days windy or more, yeah, there's more windy days than it's calm. So, I mean, that just compiled with all that stuff definitely takes an effect on them. So it's a matter of checking for all the debris and dust on there, cleaning those lenses. Um, like I said, the batteries, getting the fresh batteries in there and then just kind of running through a trial run too, just making sure turning that camera back on when you get to new batteries, testing mm-hmm. it, is it sending photos? Does anything need to be updated in it and kind of do that process of elimination before taking them back out into the field and getting them set up. And it, it goes back to a lot of times the questions that we get around a camera, maybe that's not functioning like it should be, or if it, if it quits sending photos or somebody's having trouble, you know, the, the checklist on a cell cam and, you know, we, we obviously are talking about spy point, but the checklist for a cell cam, regardless of manufacturer is really going to be the same. First off is check your batteries, especially if you're running lithiums, your battery meter might say 60%. Chances are that's dead. The, the discharge curve on a lithium battery is, you know, if we, if we go back and I'll show how old I am, like the old mag light flashlights, right? We always had those for walking around with, and when your battery started getting low, got a little dimmer and a little dimmer and a little dimmer. And eventually it just went out. If you were to go back and fire up one of those old mag lights with lithium batteries, it would be bright, 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 bright off. There's no alkalines. You can kind of watch that that, uh, discharge curve go down. Whereas with lithiums, there is no discharge curve. It's a discharge straight line and then a steep cliff and they just die. Um, so obviously um, check your batteries, check uh, and format your SD card or swap your SD card and make sure that your firmware is up to date. And it's the same thing. Like when, when I'm going to bring them in, obviously first thing, like I said, I, I have like old toothbrush or, you know, a cheap toothbrush or a nylon yep. brush and just clean everything off, clean those lenses up. Um, I've started messing around with some anti-fog on the lenses, just to see if it helps a little bit. Uh, some of the places are kind of humid, kind of down around some swamps and stuff. And uh, it, it does seem to help. It's something that needs reapplied through the course of the year if it's real bad, but some anti-fog. Um and then, like I said, going through, replace that SD card with one that um, make sure you're not quick formatting it at least once a year for sure. Make sure you're doing that big, long format that takes a long time. And then double check your firmware before you even take that, that card out of your computer. Just double check what firmware that camera's on with what the latest is. And then if you need new, just update it while that card's right in there. Drop the new firmware on, install that, and then fire that camera up with the fresh batteries and see how it's working. It just It's going to save you a lot of time. Um, another thing that that uh, people can do, and I don't know if you do this, I typically don't. I know it's one of those do as I say, not as I do things. But uh, especially if you've had batteries that leaked a little bit in there, uh, use an alcohol wipe or you know something like that just to clean up those battery contacts and make sure that uh, make sure those are functioning like they should. Uh, you, if you do all those, ninety nine percent of your cameras are going to be you'll be grooving and you'll be able to, to go into the next season pretty much ready. Absolutely. Save yourself a little time and a little headaches and just get everything ready from the get-go and set it and forget it. Exactly. So the other thing we wanted to talk about, um, you know, obviously you deal with uh, our influencer marketing specialist. You deal with a lot of our influencers. You also deal with our pro staff and get, um, you know, questions and, and that kind of thing from them and, and wanted to talk about some of the common questions that we get, some of the misconceptions that there are around different things um, and, and wanted to get into that a little bit. And I had actually a common misconception as much as I world revolves around trail cameras. It's like you think you know a lot of things and then all of a sudden you learn something and, you know, out here in North Dakota, cell service is not always the greatest. I mean, there's plenty of cell service mm-hmm. to get photos pushed through. But I always had the misconception of, well, okay, where my cameras are sitting, such a low cell service area that maybe I want to change my camera frequency to send photos twice a day, just because common sense thinks, okay, if I only send twice a day, it's less chance for it to get caught up in 
now it's going to have less chance to drain battery. It's not going to be sitting right. trying to push it through. And in talking with you just recently, it was something I realized that I was totally doing that backwards compared to what should be essential for camera function. Yeah, it's, it's the only reason I know it is because I thought wrong about it too. So I was corrected at one point. What do they say that uh, um, good decisions come from experience and experience comes from bad decisions, right? So um, you've got the scenario where, yeah, you're in a, a mediocre cell service area. It's good enough to get photos out, but maybe you miss a transmission every once in a while or whatever. So you turn the frequency down thinking that that's going to help. But if you think about the way that a cellular trail camera functions, if you're sending photos twice a day, that's two times a day that the camera is told to go communicate with the server and try to send any photos. But in a very small space and over a very small period of time, cell signal can, can change. We've seen, I mean, everybody that's ever sat in a tree stand has seen it happen. That's a tree stand you sat in today that you had good cell service. You go back two weeks later and it's terrible. The beginning of a sit, it's great. And by the end, it's terrible. Like it changes. So when you're in those marginal areas, what you actually want is for the camera to be checking for a usable signal as often as possible. Because if let's say in that, twice a day scenario, that camera is trying to send photos only once every 12 hours. And if it, for some reason, it tries to connect and the cell service at that time is not good, it's going to wait another 12 hours to try to send photos, but it's still going to take photos during that 12 hours. And it already has the photos that it didn't send the last 12. So now you're stacking up a larger data package that it's trying to send out in an already marginal area and you start stacking up a couple missed connections and then you might have 500 photos. It's just, it's, that's where the real tax on it comes up to. So honestly, the best thing you can do in a marginal service area is turn your frequency up um, six or 12 times a day. And you may miss the number of connections that are missed may go up if it's a bad area but you're going to be trying to send out smaller groups of photos. You're going to be trying to reconnect more often. It's going to give you more opportunity. It's, it's another, you know, we, people that use the each detection. I, I hate using, I never use each detection. I don't know if you do. I never I, use I each detection on any of my cameras because if I think I, I want as much control over my camera as possible. And if I'm on a 12 times a day frequency, that is 12 scheduled times that I know I can communicate with that camera, assuming it's communicating. If I have it on each detection, if you go in through your settings in SpyPoint, you'll still see that the, there's, a, there's a guaranteed one time a day. The first communication is always at, I set it at 5 a.m. because I'm me. So on each detection, even if nothing was detected at 5 a.m., the camera is going to check in with the server. But if I'm on each detection and I want to change one of my other settings and nothing walks by to trigger that camera, then it's not going to communicate until that next communication. If at 7.15 in the morning, I decide I want to change a setting on a camera that's set on each detection, it might be five o'clock the next morning. Whereas if I've got it first transmission at five o'clock and I'm doing 12 communications a day and at 7.15, I decide I want to change a setting by nine, it's done. And I know it's done. And if I want to request a photo at next transfer to make sure that it's working, I can get that. So, um, yeah, the, the, it seems counterintuitive. It's a bad service area. So I shouldn't be trying to do a bunch of communications. In reality, you should be upping that communication frequency just to give the camera more options to make a good connection. So yeah, that's, that's one that, that, uh, like I said, I used to think about it wrong. I've been corrected the uh the correction has come back around always learning and i mean it was a prime example last week and sitting on the water you know i'm sitting in a spot on the lake and i've got one bar lte and i'm trying to make a phone call and halfway through the phone call it just drops and there's no service and no service for three hours and all of a sudden it pops back so mm -hmm. it totally makes sense how that happens out in the woods where the cameras are sitting no it's it's and the, the ones that are counterintuitive that's those are always the tricky ones because you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily think of it that way, but, um, I don't, what, so what frequency do you run your cameras at? So now it's six detections a day where uh -huh. six, where before it was, I was doing early morning and evening. So catching everything that was mm -hmm. coming through in the evening or overnight and then throughout the day. But 
that was kind of my whole thought process for this. They're like, all right, well, it's less chance for those photos to the battery to just be draining and all this stuff mm -hmm. that goes on in between bad service. So as soon as I found that out, it went right to six detections. And I, I pretty much never drop below six. You know, I'll, I'll run this time of year, I'll run six detections a day or six, six uh, transfers ten. a day. Yeah. And uh, then about September 1st or so, because my season, Indiana is October 1st open. Uh, I'll switch it to 12. Kind of that last month is we're really kind of drilling in. Then I want 12, 12 communications a day. Um, and it just, it gives me, it gives me more visibility, gives me more, more opportunities to connect with that camera. If I need to make a change in the settings, you know, I don't want to be waiting four hours or six hours. I would much rather, you know, be able to turn that around quite a bit quicker. Yep. Especially in the fall, once you see buck movement starting to pick up and it's like, all right, I want to change it to multi-shot and you're not waiting right. or missing that. Yep. At least you can have that control of it. And we all like to have control of things. So that's uh, definitely a, a good thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. I know another question that we had was um, somebody they, they just they wanted to understand the the entire um, the photo quality in app and and it's again it's it's something that's discussed quite frequently um, trying to trying to get people to understand why those in app photos are what they are. And and honestly, it goes back to what we were just talking about in terms of the the low the low service areas, some of the same thought process uh, goes there. And, and I cannot, I cannot drill this home enough. That photo that's showing up in the app is a low res compressed thumbnail. Because again, let's, let's go back to your sitting on that boat scenario. You're mm -hmm. trying you know, let, because, because this is the kind of guy you are, you'll be out walleye fishing and you catch this monster walleye and you think, you know what? I just, I have to send this to my good buddy, Trent, because he's not fishing today. So I'm going to rub it in. And you're sitting on the boat in the middle of Lake Oahe and you think you've got good service and you see, you know, we've all done it. Tanner does it from the boat. Other people do it from the tree stand. And that little status bar at the top of the photo starts creeping right. And it gets to about 75%. And then the speed slows down. You have that little status bar of death, right? And then when that's, it's a, it's an inverse relationship. The slower that little status bar starts moving, the faster your battery drains start. You can almost watch it tick down 85%, 84%, 83%. because you know, you take a picture with your iPhone 37 or whatever, whatever anybody's using now, and that might be a three, six, eight megapixel photo. I mean, I, it can, it can be a, a large file and you're trying to send that through the cellular network that's unreliable. And the harder it has to work to send that file, the more your battery drain is going to go down. So while Tanner's trying to to be a smart aleck and send me this great big trophy walleye photo he's killing his battery because he's in a marginal service area so now let's apply that same thought process to a cell cam that's in a marginal service area and in the last four hours took 227 photos of coyotes and deer in it so now it's not just trying to send out that one photo it's trying to send out a batch of 200 and think about the implications that that would have on, on battery life. So, so all of those photos get compressed by the camera. The, the card still holds the full-size photo, but it's creating a secondary file that is compressed to send to the app, and that's what you're getting in the app. And uh, actually, if Tanner would send me low-res uh, compressed thumbnails all the big fish he catches, I wouldn't feel quite as bad about not fishing. I mean, I could definitely try my best to compress those right away and just get those so they and fire off even quicker. Honestly, I'm thinking of your battery life. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm just, I'm trying, you know, it's, it's not me being uh, greedy or selfish or jealous. I'm just, I'm thinking of you and your battery life while you're on it's, the boat fishing. It's very thoughtful. So yeah, the, the photos that show up in there are a, a much smaller file than what you actually have on the card and what can even be requested. Obviously, you know, SpyPoint's got the full HD photos on request. 
uh, which which is just a, a small add-on, a $5 add-on for 50 photos so that you can, when you get that photo that you do want to see in more detail, um, you can do that. And, you know, for me, I don't know, every, everybody's different. I don't need to see a lot of detail in most of my photos. That's just, I, I part of it's because most of the properties that I hunt, like I'm not focused on a particular deer necessarily either. Like, and I'm, I very rarely have so many deer that I'm focused on that look similar that I can't even look at the low res photo and be like, okay, yeah, that's that big eight or that's the big 10 or, you know, maybe if he's being on the flash or something like that, or is that a new deer? Or is that the same one? There are instances, but I'm not blowing the, like their truck. Are there deer moving? Yes. Yep. Is it a buck? Yes. Is it a big enough buck that I would shoot it? Also, yes. Cool. Great. That's, that's my checklist. Um, you know, getting a lot more detail than that really doesn't come in until closer to season, at least for me. Um, I don't know. I don't know what your thought process is as it relates to that. I, I have a hundred percent the same way, like out here in North Dakota, where a lot of our hunting is taking place at the farm. Like it's just more so getting that idea and okay, what is the movement looking like is correlation to the wind direction, just kind of pinpoint that stuff where, you know, there aren't, there's so much wide open spaces out here that there's not a lot of the same bucks coming to the same area. So getting that definite, like, okay, that one's got that little tiny kicker off to the side, like not as important to me as it may be to some guys, but again, like you alluded to before, it's not like you're taking this photo necessarily and putting it on a four by eight print. That's going to be hanging up above your couch in the house or anything right. along those lines. So, but it, I think as a camera enthusiast myself, cause I love taking photos, like, the stuff we are able to get from the woods into our app, just on our cell phones, the way it is, is amazing how that works right now. And it's, I, technology has just gone crazy and it's amazing to see it keep going that way. Well, I, I, I tell people freely that, um, you know, before I got to spy point, I, I legitimately was in the, I don't, I don't need, I hunt 20 minutes from where I live. I don't, why do I need a cell cam? Like I just, I did not, I did not understand the benefits that were there. So I, I still have kind of the kid in a candy store thing that, oh, I woke up and I drank my coffee and I can see the deer that were moving last night. Yep. Okay, cool. Like I, I still have that, that reaction every time anyway, just because it's, um, it's not something that I would have thought I would have needed. And now I, I can't imagine having to go back to pulling cards to see what happened two weeks ago. And I'm a, I'm a hundred percent the same way. And then I take it even one step further where like the farm I hunt a hundred miles to the West of me or Southwest of me and the lake. I love I Like in the summer when I'm off work, like 90% of the time you're going to find me on the water fishing and now instead of Friday afternoon deciding, do I need to go to the farm, pull cameras, pull cards, see what's going on out there, I can go 100 miles the opposite way, get on the water, and still be right. totally connected to what's going on out there. And yeah, there are going to be times I may need to go replace batteries or things like that, but it keeps me in tune with what I want to do for a hobby aside from hunting until hunting season starts to kick in. Well, that my, you know, I got a three-year-old and a five-year-old. My my life has gotten infinitely more complicated over the last few years uh with you know now we're we're reaching into t-ball that's our that's our current uh thing so you know that that stuff's only going to start piling up even more and and as it was i was already sold so um yeah moving forward i just i i can't imagine having to go back to that thought process of Okay, and it's Saturday afternoon, it's 96 degrees outside, 140% humidity. I go traipse through the swamp to pull an SD card. False. <laughs> I'm going to sit on my couch and I'm going to open an app and I'm going to see what uh, what that buck was doing on that August afternoon. I'm, I'm not doing it. Work smarter, not harder. Exactly. Uh, another one that I know you, you've had a couple of the pro staffers ask about is... Um, relative to camera positioning and like mounting the camera high and pointing it down. Is that, is that a, is that something that you do B is that something that anybody should do and B uh, I guess actually I already said B. So C, you know, what, what are the considerations that, that need to be taken in as we, as we look at that idea of mounting a camera somewhere other than just on the tree? 
Yep. And A, it's not something I currently do. Um, mine are a hundred percent just off the ground, not too far straight out. Uh, it's kind of cool to see some of the photos that you get from those different angles, whether it's up high pointing down or vice versa down up high. But, you know, you explained it best when we were at ATA, just going through a lot of the stuff on how, you know, sensors work and, and just, you've got that sensor that goes out a hundred foot, like the flex, for instance, got a hundred foot detection range that's coming out. And mm -hmm. it's a, a perfectly straight line that comes out from the camera that detects it. So now like the way you were explaining it before is you put that, camera pointing down now a hundred feet isn't a hundred feet a hundred feet might be only 60 feet depending on mm -hmm. what the angle you have so i don't necessarily see that that is a huge benefit especially if you're in a more wide open area and you're trying to capture anything out in the distance that's coming yeah. through like i personally that's my my two senses i think the the angle thing's a little bit tougher just because you're going to lose a lot of detections coming through there and it, it's there are there are places where you could make it work. It just a lot. Like I said, we, when we were talking about it on the working class bow hunter podcast, we were talking about the stick, and everybody mounts it shoulder high and then jams a stick behind it. Just put it waist high and let it shoot straight out. Um, but then you got those extreme scenarios where like guys are using some of those mounts that put it you know ten feet up in the maybe it's trespassers or whatever the case may be. You can make them work, but again, you just kind of have to understand like in that scenario, maybe you've got a pinch point between you know a couple bodies of water that you know the deer are moving in this specific area or just using this trail. Cool, that works because you're shooting at that spot and just that spot, and that's all you care about. But like you said, you're watching a field edge, say you got a food plot, it's a two acre food plot. And then you take one of the flexes, hundred foot flash detection range. You put that flex 10 feet up in a tree and point it down at the ground. You know, a nothing's going to detect it. You know, even, even once that deer's grown, maybe his antlers are five feet off the ground. You think about that laser shooting down essentially from that tree you got seven feet that it has to travel down before it gets to where the deer might actually touch it. And then you're shooting it into the ground. One thing I've experimented with, and you, you mentioned it, um, I've started mounting the cameras lower and shooting them up in some, in some places because, you know, for, there are, there are folks that think that the, even the infrared flash does bother deer, um, and or coyotes or whatever it is that you're after i think some deer are spooky and some aren't and it, there's just every every hunter is different and every buck is different and there's no there's no one answer necessarily but you do have you do have hunters that want to get that that low glow flash out of basically eye level of that deer but i think you can control it a little bit better low than you can high I just, to me, I think I can cover more of an area low shooting up and it's still, it's, you know, it's down on the ground as opposed to being up at eye level. You still have to be really careful about it and you are still going to affect your detection range a little bit. Um, I just, I think I like the idea of, of low shooting up more than up shooting down. And theoretically, it almost makes more sense when you're shooting low and up that more of the more nine times out of 10 that deer is actually going to be in the frame of the camera shot versus mm -hmm. down shooting or down shooting high shooting high. yeah because you're going to have that opportunity where that buck could have came through and detected it but it's just the tines you see i mean yeah there's going to be use cases where you may just get the hooves of a deer or if it's super close to the camera but that would happen anyways if it was coming right at it right and it's shooting normal yeah no doubt um so, and, and we kind of wanted to talk about the, some of the next, the next questions really kind of, how do you, how do you select the right trail camera? And I think a lot of times there's a misconception that a trail camera is a trail camera is a trail camera. And even, you know, just in Northeast Indiana, I'm, I'm using cameras different. Like I'm literally selecting which camera goes where based on the camera capabilities, um, and I know you're using trail cameras a little bit differently than I am being in North Dakota. So, um, kind of run, if you could just kind of run through, 
um, kind of how you're generally, how and where you're setting cameras and how you're selecting cameras to go where and, and what you're trying to get out of those placements. And I'll probably cut you off a couple of times and, and kind of compare and contrast with how I'm doing it. But, um, you know, it's something that I think we all, I think hunters typically, it's a trail camera, I know what I'm doing, but you can get a little nerdier about it. And I think it's good to hear some thought process from some different hunters from time to time about how they go about it. It, absolutely. So where I'm hunting in Southwest North Dakota, I mean, there's just not a lot of trees out here. So it's not like a lot of your typical Midwest, you're in the forest, thick woods. So discreet is very um, much a great thing out here. So a lot of the spots I have, we have a couple shelter belts where we're putting our cameras. And then the vast majority of our stuff is either on fence posts, whether it's a barbed wire fence. I'm going to cut you off real quick because for I know what you're talking about, but I'm sure there's some flatlanders that heard you say shelter belt and said, <laughs> what is he what talking is about? So what's a shelter belt for those that don't know? So a shelter belt for those that don't know is a man-made tree row that's planted, whether it's three or four trees wide, maybe it's 20 mm-hmm. feet wide by hundred, 200 yards long. Just uh, a lot of them were set up. I mean, when people homesteaded out here in the Dakotas back in the early 1900s, like Shelter belts were established to be a windbreak just because there are no trees out here. So they were established, Mm -hmm. whether it was farmsteads or protected areas where you had bad wind blow with the crops. So you're trying to keep your topsoil there. So a lot of the stuff we're hunting, um, you know, one area I can think of is an old farmstead that's no longer in in use. It's just a couple dilapidated buildings there. And there's some deer paths that come through on the edge of those shelter belts. So we're running cameras there. Um, and then there's a couple spots that are out more in the, the wide open where it's just random tree rows plopped in to help mm-hmm. soil erosion. So in those kind of areas, you know, our link micro S with the solar panel or any of our solar panel options are, are great options there because you have a little more cover to keep things discreet. Yep. But then there's spots where we've got some watering holes for, for the ranching out there where there's cattle coming in and then we have um, one area that I hunt particular, there's about 160 acres of just CRP and there's no particular place where the deer necessarily come in and out of frequently. So the best guess we have there is, all right, we've got a barbed wire fence with a couple wooden posts every couple hundred yards that are a little bit more significant. And over the course of the years, watching these deer move back in from the, the ag fields over to the CRP to bed, it's our best guess that we can get photos of those deer. And that right there is where the link micro has come in handy because that's such a small little compact camera. You put that on yep. a little fence post. Heck, there's times where I'm driving up with the Ranger, the side-by-side, and I can barely see the camera until I'm five yards from the fence post because it just blends right. in so well. So a lot of our stuff is just, you know, bigger cameras are better where it's a little bit more wooded or thick cover mm-hmm. where you can conceal them better. And smaller cameras have been a handy, crucial thing when we're talking fence rows and I mean, or even the little um, tripods that you can put them on. There's been some yep. instances that that works well for those. So, and is North Dakota a walk-in state? Like, do you have a trespasser issue out there where you want to keep those cameras discreet? Is that something where somebody can just get permission to walk in off a right-of-way? What's it like out it, there? For it that? is. And actually, North Dakota is one of the last few, and it's, I don't know if it's going to change here soon because it's been in legislation for a few years and it hasn't passed. We're still an open, uh, no trespass law, like, you find 160 acres of land that's not posted with posted signs or no trespassing signs on the corners, you're 100% legal to walk in there and go hunt. Um, so there's a lot of that, but most of the stuff I'm hunting on the private land um, with the family is no trespass, posted no trespassing, mm-hmm. but there are still a lot of instances where, I mean, even a year ago, I we caught someone trespassing on it, shot a small buck off the property. So Again, it's a trail camera that's been working great for keeping an eye on our deer, but also it's been handy to try to keep, I mean, trespassers coming in there. They don't see the camera and at least you have some proof or some idea of what's going on to help in that scenario. Yeah. And I'm, like you said, I'm totally different, totally different universe. Northeast Indiana, we've got ag, but it's, you know, still a lot of woods and a lot of my thought process obviously, you know, trespassers are somewhat a concern, but I'm, I'm really, I'm looking at camera function for where I'm placing. So, um, you know, it seems like you're, you're really keyed on a lot of trails for the most part and makes, you know, your food, food sources are a lot more 
difficult. You know, they're, they're a lot more scattered, a lot more kind of a browse diet for those North Dakota deer, you know, all deer are browsers, but we've got a little, you know, when you've got 500 acres of corn around every corner in Northeast Indiana, it's they're, they're eating in an ag field. It's yep. beans, it's corn, it's clover, whatever you're doing. Um, and you know, whether it's food plots or whatever, but trigger speed, especially is one that I'm looking at. So, um, the, like the link S dark, uh, got the super fast trigger, even some of the non-cells have the faster trigger, but even, you know, even just that 10th of a second difference from the micro to the micro S whenever possible, if I'm hanging on a trail, I'm going to try to go with that slightly faster trigger speed option just because that deer is moving. So I need, you know, they're not, you know, the, a standard micro for me, I'm running either on a water source or a food source a transition area into a food source where that deer is not just walking by and then walking on. They're coming in, they're milling around, they're feeding in front of it, or they're, they're waiting for dark to be able to cross over. Cause I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss that deer because it was moving too quick to come through to capture it. And it's, I, um, and segue back into another thing that, um, we've had, I've seen questions about before is, you know, where people can change the trigger speed on their camera and you know, they want, we assume faster is better. Yeah. We assume that faster is better. And to some extent it is in terms of, it is the tri fast trigger speed is better for coming out of sleep mode and taking a picture. But the quality of that picture will not be as good as if it was on a slower trigger, because what the camera has to do in that time is wake up and then you know, I'll show my age, the, the old Pentax K1000s that I learned to take photos with in photography class in high school, where we had to change the F-stop and, you know, make all of those adjustments so that it's not a black photo and it's not a white photo that's completely washed out. The camera has to wake up, take stock of the ambient conditions, decide what the camera setting should be, and then take a photo. And the shorter you make that time when you condense it down and say, nope, you come on and you take a picture as fast as possible, well, you're not going to get as good of a photo because the camera is just going to be like, ah, close enough. And it's either going to be overexposed, underexposed, whatever the case may be. So whenever possible, I'm trying to work on optimal or just the standard trigger speed and then just position the camera such that you know, like I said, if it's a, if it's a micro, that's got a half second trigger speed, which is still a great trigger speed, but I'm not, I don't want to max it out. I want to put it in it. I want to put the camera in a position to be able to succeed. Um, so just again, kind of some food for thought as, as you go to hang your cameras this summer, you know, really look at the camera that you're running and see if you've got some differences between them that would say, okay, no, this, you know, the, the detection range on this is, you know, 20 feet bigger. Okay. Well maybe put that one on a food plot and not on a trail where that 20 feet of detection range is may apples and thorn bushes. Like what good's that doing? You? Yep. The other thing that's been really beneficial on these cameras in the last couple of years is the multi-shot too. I mean, just being out here in the vast wide open spaces, it's nice mm -hmm. to be able to get those multiple shots when those deer are moving through that you may not necessarily get the whole deer in the frame at first or vice versa. And it's just been nice to be able to manipulate that to kind of maybe not so much in the early season, but once you get into the peak of deer season and you get closer mm -hmm. to rut, it's been handy to be able to swap that over to be able to get as much maximized photo opportunity as you can. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing that I definitely, as the year goes on, it's a setting that evolves for me. Um, I might run multi-shot, but I'll run a longer delay this time of year. Because, you know, their bachelor groups are milling around. You know, the, the deer are just in a different mood. And yep. then once we get to the middle of October and you start seeing some of that, the chasing activity, and then especially into November, um, I'll cut the delays way down, you know, down to instant or maybe 10 seconds, but usually instant and a multi-shot because um, I don't know what your buck doe ratio is like out there, but I got a couple farms around here where it's not uncommon to see three or four bucks chasing a doe around. And it's never, it's never the big one that's right on her heels. You know what I mean? It's, uh -huh. it's always the little ones are right there. And then big dog is always like, yeah, you, you guys run her into the ground and I'll be over there when it actually matters. So, uh, making sure that you're getting those follow-up shots, uh, 
for what may be coming five or eight or 10 seconds later has, has really given us some really valuable information. Well, and exactly. And I mean, even with the, the trailing of that, or, you know, up here, we don't have a huge, like there's more, more does than bucks, obviously, but like the ratio is just so out of whack that usually there's one buck per doe and mm-hmm. he may have multiple does, but nine times out of 10, it's like, okay, I just had a doe come through. Where's the buck? Well, he was mm-hmm. tailing her right there and you may not like, so having that ability to get that multiple shots or mm-hmm. like you said, increasing that, uh, or lowering the delay that you have that opportunity where it's like, all right, now I see the buck that I've been missing. He's been yep. there instantly. So we'll, we'll start to wrap it up. We've rambled for a while. Uh, hopefully some, some folks have gotten some good information out of here. And, and uh, if not, uh, be sure to, to let us know that everything that we said you already knew and that this was a complete waste of a podcast. We'll, we'll happily take that. But obviously, if you've got questions about anything that we mentioned, uh, you can reach out to us on any of the social medias and, and we'll do our best to address those questions. But I uh, just wanted to wrap up with just a few more uh, of those best practices. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of how to a lot of self-help tips. You can go to our YouTube page. It's, it's uh, youtube.com slash spy point. You can check out uh, some of those things, but just wanted to touch on uh, a few things that are, are definitely top of my mind. And then if there's anything else that Tanner wants to add in, um, the, the number one thing that we kind of already talked about is make, make sure you're maximizing the detection range. You know, don't jam that stick behind it. it. And like I said, if you've got a really specific area where you want to mount it high or you want to mount it lower, it makes sense. That's fine. But just, you know, be deliberate about it. Take the time to actually think, okay, where, do, where is this camera going? What is it doing? What does that detection zone look like in this application? Then do what you can to maximize it. And that means the camera goes hip high, not shoulder high. That's that's going to maximize your detection range and, and make sure that's the thought process for when you're positioning those cameras. Um, another thing, the I don't know about for Tanner, for me, the absolute most valuable tool that I have in my in my arsenal when it comes to hanging trail cameras is a machete. Because... Mm-hmm. I, there are times you can't avoid it. If you're going to put a trail camera on a scrape and that time of year is going to be here before we know it, that means low overhanging branches and low overhanging branches means they get blown in the wind. And that means for every good photo of 150 inch buck working a scrape, you're going to have 200 photos of that maple branch just swinging in the wind. And that sucks. Uh, But at least this time of year, go in, get that grass and the weeds out from in front of it. Anything that you can clear out in front of that camera to really focus on what you're doing, you know, make sure you're putting in the effort. You're not just walking in and strapping a camera to a tree and then walking away and, and thinking, well, yeah, we're done. No big deal. Especially, you know, especially with cell cams where photo counts, you know, that's, you know, spy point, it's a photo count you know, maybe you're trying to run on free or you're, uh, you're an insider club member. So you're getting basic 250 as the upgrade. So you got 250 photos every month, but then that 4th of July storms come through and blowing and all you have is 195 <laughs> photos of a little white pine sapling blowing in the wind in front of your camera. That's not what you were after. So just be deliberate with that camera placement. And then also be deliberate with how you're leaving that area to make sure that you're, uh, you're, you're getting the most out of it. Tanner, what, uh, what do you, what do you got with some of your, you know, the same thing. I mean, I believe we call it a sigh out here is what I've been using to clear off all the grass out in the prairie, yeah. because that is a definitely a, can be a problem if it's not rectified right away. Um, the other thing is, you know, with the batteries I mean, we touched on it earlier, but running lithium batteries, just, you know, regular mm-hmm. alkaline batteries will work, but lithium is just that much better. And especially mm-hmm. up here in the Northern part of the Midwest, our temperatures fall pretty quick and pretty rapidly. And it, I've noticed over the last couple of years, running a little bit better quality battery in there has really helped improve um, just keeping those cameras out there a little bit longer. And the other best practice, um, which I think we probably already alluded to is, you know, when you put that camera out there and like a lot of the deer trails that I'm running on up here is making sure it's not facing perpendicular to that trail, kind of, you know, 45 degree angle or so. So you're catching them as they're coming in or going away and you're going to pick up that many more deer into your frame of your actual, of your photo. No, that's a great one. And it's, it's one, that's a tip that's, it's been out there for a long time and a lot of people know it, but I think we're all still guilty of, you know, we've hung a trail camera and then we start getting photos and we go, 
and then we start seeing just deer butts on the one you know on, as they're exiting this as they're exiting the side of the frame we have a uh-huh. deer butt and we're like uh-huh we're, we're either we set up too close to that trail or we're at too much of an angle yeah definitely if you can like I said, again, that's maximize putting, put the camera in a position to succeed, you know, yep. set it up so that you can maximize that detection range and get that deer coming or going, not walking across in front of the camera. You want it walking towards the camera or alongside the camera and, and pick it up there. Yeah. That's it's, it, it, it's, you can't say it too often because I, I still make that mistake and I'm sure everybody else is, we know that it's what we should be doing and we're still screwing it up. And as hunters, that's inbred into us just by like, all right, I know I shouldn't be, I'm going to put myself into the best position to shoot that deer. I shouldn't be in that tree stand because the wind's not the right direction. Or right. I shouldn't go chase after that bedded deer over there in the Western North Dakota, because there's a couple does between me and that buck and she's going to blow right. them out. Like, so we right. already have that thought process and putting that into the trail camera thought process should just come second nature, but yet we still have to think about it every time. One other one. Um, and I've, this is the one that probably frustrates me the most when it happens is even if it means taking a compass with you, try to avoid setting your camera up facing east or west because you will you will get a detection as the sun is rising or setting and all you will see is that whole frame getting blown out by the sun and maybe you can see one big beam that looks like a great deer but you know be flexible with where honestly and that goes back to signal quality too because we talked about how much it can change in a small area we all we go in there and we're like i'm gonna put the the camera on this tree and it's gonna face that way and it's gonna be perfect and then you get there and that's facing dead east this is a morning spot it's facing dead east and as that sun's coming up all i'm gonna get is lens flare or you get there, you go to put it on the tree and you can't get a good signal there. You have to be flexible. And, and sometimes moving one or two trees over is, an, is all that it takes to get you that usable signal to get you a better framing. Um, and this, this actually wasn't even on the list, but it, it's come up here recently. The number of people that I talk to that they go in, they strap the camera on, they turn it on and the status lights come on and they just walk away. I'm that idiot that I'm walking around in front of my camera for five minutes and I'm refreshing my app and I'm making sure that I want it to be framed exactly right. Okay. Yep. This tree is on the left border. This tree is on the right border. It's moving here. Great. It's work. Like just hang out, pull your phone out, open it up, make sure that it's transmitting, make sure that it's, make sure that it's framed up the way that you want it because three quarters of the cameras that I set, I put them on the tree and I'm like, yep, that's right. And then I look at it and it looks like a Salvador Dali painting. It's crooked and it's not where I want it. And trees are all bendy and I have to move that camera to get the shot that in my head I was already getting. So just slow down, take the time to get it set right. Because if you don't have time to set it right the first time, you certainly don't have time to drive home, get that first batch of photos, realize that you hung it like you were fallen down a set of stairs and then run back out to the woods to move it again to get it right just take the time invest the time right up front to get it right the first time and uh you know if you've done if you've done the maintenance if you've selected the right camera you've taken the time to to get the camera set up right and verify that it's set up right you you've taken all those weak links where people have issues and you've eliminated them uh, you couldn't have said that any better. That uh, that rings home true. I mean, that was me this year. I was out in front of the camera doing this, just kind of, all right, there it came through, set perfect. I mean, I'm a photographer by heart, and if the, any little bit of the photo is not framed right, or it's going to drive me insane, and I'm going to want to have to go drive another 100 miles and go switch it. So mm-hmm. taking the time is definitely, it's well worth it. So Tanner, I'm going to let you close us out here. Uh, let everybody know where they can find Spy Point. Uh, let them know, you know, what's what's coming here. In the next, we got an exciting four or six weeks ahead of us. So kind of let them know what's coming, where they can follow us and find us uh, to stay up to date with all the latest. Absolutely. So yeah, online, you know, SpyPoint.com, and then all of our social handles are SpyPoint Trail Camera. You'll be able to find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. 
uh, LinkedIn, YouTube. We talked about that already too. I mean, we're we're dropping content all all week, every. It's just we're trying to give you everyone as much as they can, a to become better with land and herd management, um, trail cameras, deer hunting. So we're we're very prevalent on social media, but the thing that's been consuming our lives lately that we're super excited to be getting out into the hands of everyone pretty soon is the new spy point flex that's gonna be that's the game changer and we've been talking about it since ata and shot show and you know we we're super excited it's gonna be able to shoot 33 megapixel photos it's gonna transmit 1080p video with sound right to the app um dual sim auto connectivity so you know previous spy point models whether you needed to pick a vzn or a nationwide model depending on where your camera was placed now we take the guesswork out of it you buy the one camera set it up and there's two pre-loaded sim cards already in the camera that are going to connect to the best network that's available and like it makes life so much easier and then so much easier and the other the feature that i'm super like probably when i heard about the features on this camera was most excited about just from the distance I travel to go hunt is the over-the-air firmware updates. Being able to do that yep. remotely through the app is yep. such a time saver. And with the whole reason we're into the cell cams is because that's keeps us connected and not have to be in the woods as much and disturbing things. That's going to be an amazing benefit to that, along with being able to format your card remotely. Um, and like we said earlier, we were talking about flash and detection range. It's going to have a hundred foot flash and detection range. So there's a lot of great features packed into this camera that, is is very exciting yeah i i can't i as we sit here recording this you know we we uh there's there's a lot going on with the flex and we are all very excited the the reaction has been really good so um those are going to be those are going to be coming incredibly incredibly soon and maybe by the time uh people listen to this there's gonna be even some more information about it so uh yeah like tanner said just uh whatever your social media platform of choice is search spy point camera, find us at spypoint.com. Check out project spy point for uh, the podcast. We've got the video series. We're doing the written blogs. Um, and then of course, social media, it's, uh, it's easy to work for spy point because everybody looks, loves looking at trail camera photos. So uh, getting as many of those cool and interesting trail camera photos out there as we can. So uh, Tanner, appreciate you uh, taking time away from everything else that you have going on to hop on here. And hopefully, hopefully you all got something interesting out of this. Have a good one. We'll talk to you next time.